Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're glad to have uh, you here with us this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and especially if you are newer here with us, we're really glad that you're here this morning, and we're continuing in our series in the book of James, and as we look at this passage more in depth together, we'd love to pause as before we continue in that and just uh, ask for God's blessing and help in the midst of that. So let's do that now. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have given us the gift of your word. And we pray now for the power of your Holy Spirit to open it up for us in fresh ways, that you would help us to understand just where we need to apply the truth that you have communicated through James uh, to us. So would you make us attentive, and would you give us uh, a posture of not only being hearers, but doers as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Amen. William Ernst Henley and Judson W. Vandeventer were born six years apart in the mid-1800s. Henley was born in 1849 in Gloucester, England, while Vandeventer was born in 1855 on a farm in Michigan. And they were both in their 30s during a period known as the Second Industrial Revolution, or sometimes called the Technical Revolution. And this is the period of time where, where most of the world had been mapped and explored by European powers. A steam power had been mastered, allowing for transportation by steamboat, by train, by steamship, that allowed people to sort of transcend time and distance in ways that they had really never been able to before. Again, we take for granted rapid travel, cars, international airline flights, but it's not that long ago. It's really only been a short period of human history that you've been able to move faster than you could walk or that a horse or a donkey or some other animal could carry you. And so they lived during this time where, where now you're able to transcend distance and time in ways like never before. This is also the age when the telegraph enabled rapid communication across vast distances, even by the time of their lives, across the Atlantic Ocean because of the transatlantic telegraph cable that had been laid in 1850. Again, this is something we don't even think about in the world of, of text messaging that's instantaneous, but to before that, the fastest way you could get a message was by a letter carried by ship or by train. Now the telegraph allows rapid communication. Expanding electrical grids during that time, the invention of the incandescent light bulb allowed for the illumination of spaces after the sun went down. Right before that, if you really wanted to illumine a space, the best you could do is to get a lot of candles or, or oil lamps, that kind of thing together, which were not very bright, they were dirty, and so you were really confined to good working or reading when there was daylight. Now, you had the ability to sort of transcend that, that nighttime shutdown. You could work and read well into the night. So this was a world, theirs 
was a world that could be controlled. An age of, of human triumph over nature, of mastering nature through technology and science. And we're going to come back to those two men later on. But for us, here in 2021, the world that they lived in is the world that we have inherited. The way of thinking that they were living in is the way of thinking that we have inherited in the North Atlantic West. Uh, we hold to a, a deep sense that we can control our lives, our finances, our health. And we have, in many ways, more control than we ever have had as a human species. But we've never been more anxiously, collectively, as a society and a culture than now. And that's, that's pretty well documented as long as we have recorded those kinds of things, that we are more anxious, we are more worried as a society and culture than we have ever been. And I, I think part of the reason for this is that the more control you have, the more control you want, and also the more acutely aware of, of what it is that you can't control, how much you can't control. Now, this impulse to control has certainly intensified in Western culture, but it is not new or unique to our culture. You know, we may have in the West, in the 21st century, sort of refined that down, distilled that down to 120 proof. But everyone has been imbibing the impulse to control our future and fate for a long time. People everywhere are wrestling with the question, how do you plan when life is short and the future is uncertain? How, how do you plan when life is short and the future is uncertain? How do you plan when, when pandemics, when uh, recessions, when natural disasters, illnesses, job loss can all end upend our plans in a second? Now maybe for some of you, you're like, I live in that world all the time and just you listing off that, that list of, of potential problems or struggles causes some tightness in my chest just, just hearing that. And this morning as we continue in our Real Faith series, Pastor James is going to show us a posture toward our plans that can set us free from the worry and stress that come with our plans. He's going to show us that real faith in Jesus trusts Jesus with what it can't control. That real faith Trust Jesus with what it can't control. And if you only write down one thing this morning, if you only remember one thing from this morning, I hope it's that, that real faith trusts Jesus with what it can't control. Which, if we're really honest about it, is, is actually quite a bit, right? It's quite a bit that is outside of our control. Basically everything. So what's at stake here? If, if we don't get what James is teaching us this morning, if we miss out on the invitation that he's giving us to this kind of real faith in Jesus, that trusts him without a can't control, what we're putting at stake is really, in many ways, our relationships, uh, our spheres of influence, in which we will show up in those spaces as a much more anxious person than we have to be. At a time when our world is desperate for people who are a non-anxious presence, who have a deep sense of peace, who can be sources of sort of life and hope and confidence in a world that is so anxious. So real faith in Jesus. Trust Jesus with what it can't control. And the first thing that James shows us in this passage is a symptom. He, he gives us an indicator, sort of a blinking dashboard light 
that tells us we may not really be trusting Jesus in this way. And, and that symptom is this, that the symptom is arrogant and anxious control. And you see it in verses 13 and 14 here in chapter 4. And if you haven't turned there yet, I invite you to do that now. You can grab one of those pew Bibles. Again, that's page 1012 there. Or if you open up your phone and just go to Google, you can put James and that's the numeral 4 into Google and it will pull up a number of websites that you will be able to follow along in this text. So James chapter 4, and just encourage you to turn there, find that. And then we're going to look at verse 13. And James says, Come now, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What happens or what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And then down to verse 16, he says, And as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Uh, basically, James is saying, you know, look, you go around making all these plans, but you're, you don't know. You don't know the future. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if you've been with us for a little bit in this series, you, you may remember uh, that the kind of the context, the best that we can understand that James is writing is James was the uh, pastor of the church in Jerusalem right after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. He's, he's leading these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But when another early church leader named Stephen uh, was killed for his faith, this kind of persecution of Christians broke out in Jerusalem, and so many of them fled to other places in the Roman Empire. And so James, this letter seems to be, he's writing as their pastor to these Christians who are spread out in different places around the Roman Empire now because of the dispersion that happened after that killing of Stephen. And, and you can almost imagine in this section, I mean, again, we don't know for sure, but you can almost imagine that some of those Christians who had to flee said, well, we'll, we'll go to such and such a place. You know, we can't be in Jerusalem, but we'll go to such and such a place. We'll continue our businesses and our practices, and we'll, we'll make a profit. And James is reminding them, but you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't even know. Now, to be clear, James is not against making plans. What he's challenging here is an arrogant boasting about those plans, as if you had ultimate control over them to make them happen, to bring them about. And what James addresses head on in this passage is that, that symptom of arrogant boasting. And that symptom of arrogant boasting, it believes the oldest lie that there is. And that is the lie that you will not surely die. That's the lie of Genesis 3. That the serpent comes to those first humans with, to the man and the woman, and says, if you take control... If you seize control for yourself, if you do this, you will not surely die. In fact, you will find life, not death. But God told the humans that life was found in trusting his wisdom. But they believed the lie, and so do we. The lie that we can be in control, the lie that we will not surely die. Now, when I read James' imagery there in chapter 4 of this idea in verse 14 of the, you know, you, this idea of a vapor or a mist that vanishes, two, two things come to my mind. Uh, first, an episode of The Simpsons, and second, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. So first, an episode of The Simpsons. If you're a fan of The Simpsons, you'll remember there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer uh, thinks that he has eaten some poisoned sushi. And he goes to the doctor and he says, I, you know, I think I've eaten this, this poisoned sushi, and the doctor says, look, if, if you have, you've got 24 hours to live. 
And, and then he hands him a brochure. And the title of the brochure is, So You're Going to Die. <laughs> Which I, I I'd always laugh at that moment. But this is kind of that moment for James. He's kind of handing us the, So You're Going to Die brochure. He's saying, look, this life is, is a mist. It's, it's a vapor. It vanishes just like that. Uh, and, you know, that wisdom is much older than the writers of The Simpsons. And, of course, it goes back to the Old Testament. In the wisdom tradition of the Hebrew Bible, in particular, in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, where the theme throughout that book is this idea of life being a vapor, smoke, a mist. It's the Hebrew word hevel. Often gets translated as, as meaninglessness. The sense of, of just the, the, the quickly fading reality of our lives. In fact, we are actually gonna do a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. This is not a, this is not a joke, this is true. We had an entire series planned on Ecclesiastes and we, we had graphics, everything made up. We were calling it Life Up in Smoke. And it was scheduled to start like the week after the pandemic began in March, 2020. And we just thought, you know, I think people feel like they, they, they get the message. Life is up in smoke. So we pivoted and we preached a message series in the Psalms. We felt like that's the kind of the comfort that people read now, right now, not like rubbing it anymore. Look, you can't control everything. Life is meaningless. You're going to die. Um, just didn't seem like the message to deliver, especially in the early days of the pandemic. So we will preach that series at some point, uh, maybe next year. We'll do a great series on Ecclesiastes. I mean, we were, we were ready to launch this thing. And then, of course, Life is a vapor, and it all changes on a dime. And so a global pandemic broke out, and we shelved that series, and we'll, we'll do it. I think we're going to do it in, in, in 2022 at some point. But life is a vapor. It's a mist. That's what James wants us to know. It's part of recognizing the finitude that we have. We forget this, when we forget this, we tend to live and to act and to boast about a future that is largely out of our control. Because as James put it so poignantly here, you, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, much less a year from now. Now, I, I do think there are probably some of us here who have, have had moments of kind of doing that explicit boasting that James names here of saying, you know, look, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I've got this plan worked out, I'm gonna retire early, I'm gonna have X number of dollars saved, and by the time I'm, I'm 45, I'm, I'm gonna be, you know, have my business on autopilot, and I'm gonna have, have it made, and, and we go around boasting about that. Or, you know, boasting that, you know, I've, I've got all these measures in place, and I might give my kids all the right vitamins, and so they're, they're just, they're never gonna get sick. I mean, maybe, you, maybe some of us boast like that, but I think for most of us, we actually don't explicitly boast like that. I think even culturally, Midwest culture, it's kind of a culture of modesty and humility, and we don't like to, you know, it's just not done to boast like that. But I think there's another way that this, what James talks about here, shows up in our lives. And, and it's not arrogant boasting, but it's anxious control. Anxious control. Now, before we go any further here, we have to remember that there are levels, right? There are levels of anxiety and, and worry. And there is sort of a, a, a standard run-of-the-mill anxiety, worry that we all face, that we all deal with uh, all throughout our lives, maybe different seasons uh, having, depth, uh, you know, that more, be more of a part of our lives. But there's also an, a level of intensity of anxiety, especially coupled with depression, that, that's like a whole other kind of thing that really, if you find yourself in that place, like you, you need the help of a good counselor, other mental health professionals. And so even as we're having this conversation about worry, about anxiety, 
I just want you to know, one, you're not alone. If you're experiencing that, you're not alone. That there are lots of other people, lots of other people in this congregation who have dealt with, are dealing with that kind of anxiety and depression. So you're not alone. And two, we as your pastors would love to walk alongside of you in that so you know you're not alone and connect you with good counselors, with good mental health resources. So I just, I just want you to hear as we talk about anxiety, as we talk about some of the spiritual dynamics to worry, that there are sometimes moments when you just need help from, from somebody who can do this. So just know that. What I'm, what I'm getting at here as we talk about anxiety and worry is kind of that run-of-the-mill, everyday anxiety that we all face when it comes to our future plans, that, that robs us of joy and peace when it comes to the future and so again, I think many of us are much more inclined to say something like, I'm worried I won't have enough money to retire. I'm worried that my kids are going to get sick than to explicitly boast about our 401k skyrocketing or our children never getting sick. But boasting and worry, while they, they bear different sorts of fruit, they, they grow in the same soil. One is a tall, sort of spiny, thistly weed that grows up above. This is the arrogant boasting and it kind of looks out to the future and looks down on everything else. The other is a creeping kudzu vine that chokes out life and light. That's the, the sort of the, the anxious worry. But both of those grow in the soil of control. Arrogant boasting is more of a God-ignoring or a God-dismissing control, whereas anxious worry is more of a God-forgetting control. Boasting wants to take control, to seize control. Worry is afraid of losing control. If arrogant control looks to future plans and boasts about outcomes it can't control, anxious control looks to future plans and puts its trust in them for security and hope. And yet both ultimately live in the future, a future that they can't control, putting their hope in themselves rather than remaining rooted in the present, putting their hope in the God who controls and holds the future. And again, this, this goes all the way back to the garden. Both anxious and arrogant controllers tell a story, a, a story that implicitly believes that either God doesn't exist, or for many of us, we can live sort of lives of functional atheism where we maybe we would say, you know, cognitively, yes, that God is real and he exists, but I don't, that doesn't really have a bearing on, on anything in my life. So we believe or live as though God doesn't exist. Or we believe that he exists, but we don't believe he can be trusted. Or we don't believe that his rule, his, his plan, his purpose is actually for our good. Arrogant controllers and anxious controllers both need a better story. A better story about who God is, a better story about the future. And it's that better story that James invites us to inhabit in verse 16. Uh, this is the, the, the story is the solution to the problem. It's the, it's the solution of humble trust and surrender. And this is what you see in verse 15. Again, just to give us some context, to remind us, if you go back up to verse 13, James is saying, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then he sk skipped down to verse 15. He says, instead, this is what you ought to say. Instead of that, you should say this. If the Lord wills, 
we will do this or that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, that might seem like a subtle shift, but it isn't. It is actually an entirely different way of living. It's an entirely different way about thinking who God is. It's an entirely different way of being in the world and a totally different story to inhabit. And to be clear, it isn't just about sort of superstitiously adding a, a few words, four words to the beginning of anything I'm going to do, if the Lord wills. It's not just like sprinkling some kind of holy water, pixie dust phrase onto our plans and saying, okay, check it off. I've done what James wants me to do. Instead, it is a titanic relocation of our trust and security, a scary but life-giving surrender of control, of a control that we never had to begin with, a control that we could never have. And this better story is rooted in many ways in the truth that James points us to back in chapter one in verses 16 and 17, where he writes this. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What a different picture, a different story about who God is. When we entrust our lives to the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord who gives good and perfect gifts, the Father of lights who doesn't shift or change, but is always and forever committed to our good and our joy to the point that he sent Jesus to become a human being, to experience all of the pain, the suffering, the trial, of this life, of what it is to be a human in a broken and fallen world, who, who, who died on the cross, who rose again from the dead to triumph over the forces of evil that assault us. He loved us and cared for us that much. Who rose again so that everything sad might come untrue. That is the better story that says, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If the Lord, who loved me that way, who conquered death, who will ensure that one day everything sad comes untrue, if that Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Now we are able to live out that better story when we have our minds and our hearts transformed. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, Paul was another, he was a contemporary of James, another leader of the early church. He planted many uh, churches, wrote lots of letters in our New Testament to those churches. This is one to the church in Rome. He says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And in verse two, he says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform to the pattern of this world that, that arrogantly boasts about future plans, that anxiously worries about what it can't control. Don't conform to that pattern. Don't conform, to, that is how people operate in this world. Do not conform to that pattern, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then look, look what he says next. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is 
his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. The Lord whose will is good and pleasing and perfect. Okay, so what are some practices this morning that can help us to renew our minds so that we have more of that Romans 12, 1 and 2 posture that we're not conformed to those patterns anymore? What are some practices that can help us with that today? Basically, in light of the, the problem that we looked at of arrogant and anxious controlling and then the solution being a sort of a posture of humble trust and surrender, how do we actually do that? How do Christians plan? How do Christians approach the future? Well, I want to suggest three things here, two practices and then just a next step that we can take together this week. The first practice is this, simply to number your days. Number your days. This is the wisdom of the psalm writer in Psalm 90, and the psalms are a collection of songs and poems that really in many ways tell the story of the whole Bible. They are full of emotion, the whole spectrum of human emotion. There is not a emotion that you can experience as a human being that you cannot find somewhere in the psalms, from anger to bitterness to joy to just utter despondency to frustration. It's all there in the psalms. And in Psalm 90, in verses 10 and 12, we read this. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We may get a heart of wisdom. This is getting back to this idea of James reminding ourselves the the shortness of our life, that it's it's a vapor, it's a mist. It's here for a short period of time, and then it's gone now, next year, I'm going to turn 40, so I figure if, if I've got, uh, get to the, the strength of, of 80, I've got 40 more years at best, right? That's about 14,600 more days. 14,000, 15,000 days maybe I've got left. Again, none of those days are guaranteed. But even doing that quick math, putting a number on it, helps us to plan well because it knows that there's not always going to be more time. That time will eventually, in this life, it will run out. So all wise Christian planning starts with that truth that we are finite, that we are limited, that our days are numbered. The second practice is this, to rest in holy uncertainty. Rest in holy uncertainty. I love this quote from pastor and author John Mark Comer. He, he wrote these words actually early on in the, in the pandemic, uh, early on in, you know, during the stay-at-home orders when, when really, you know, in those early days of March and April, we didn't know what this was going to be. What would, how fast would it spread? How deadly was this virus going to be? Vaccines? I mean, if you can put yourself back in that, those days. And he wrote these words when we were still staying in homes, the streets were empty. He says, holy uncertainty is the capacity to live with a very loose grip or no grip at all on our plans and more important on the outcomes of our plans because, and this is so key, because our security is rooted in a relational connection to God, not in a false sense of control. Don't miss that. A relational connection to God, that's where our security is rooted, not in a false sense of control. And then he goes on to say, apprentices of Jesus who developed this capacity for holy uncertainty still make plans, 
but they are free at an emotional level from the need for those plans to come to pass. They're free at an emotional level from the need for those plans to come to pass. And I think that's exactly right. If you find yourself uh, struggling with embracing a posture of holy uncertainty due to fear or worry, I highly recommend uh, a book called Afraid of All the Things, Tornadoes, Cancer, Adoption, and Other Stuff You Need the Gospel For. And uh, it is not only, it's a short book, so that's helpful. Uh, It is theologically rich, which is necessary, and it is also laugh out loud funny. Um, Actually, uh, the author, her mom was a a writer for Saturday Night Live, and she has that. It's just, it's such a beautifully written and just, again, laugh out loud funny book. Afraid of all the things, tornadoes, cancer, adoption, and other stuff you need the gospel for. It's just a great resource to take a journey into figuring out some worry, some anxiety in your life. So number your days, rest in holy uncertainty. And then here's the, the, the third thing, this kind of practical next step we can take together. And I really want us to do this together. If, if you're willing to do this together as a community over the next week, over the next seven days, if you would just pray your calendar and to-do list each morning. As you look at your appointments and your tasks for that day, for that week, take a moment to actively pray to surrender those things to God. Because it's on our calendars, it's on our to-do list where we're making those plans, where whether implicitly or explicit, we, we can tend to be boasting about this is what I'm gonna do, or this is where I'm gonna go, and this is what I'm gonna accomplish, or this is what I'm afraid is not gonna happen or get done. So what if for the next week we just tried on that habit together? And I don't know when when you look at your calendar, when you look at your to-do list, maybe it's first thing in the morning, maybe it's in in the evening as you're getting ready for the next day. But just to to look at those appointments and say, you know, Jesus, I surrender that meeting to your control. The outcome is in your hands. You know, here's a list of, of household tasks and projects I need to get done tomorrow. But I know there might be a friend who's gonna call and need me. There might be a kid who's gonna need more help than I anticipated. And so, Jesus, I'm giving those things to you now, trusting you with the outcomes. And and what that posture allows you to do then is when you get to the evening, and you invariably, as we all do, maybe none of you experience this, but I always get to the end of the day, and there are always things on my to-do list that didn't get done, meetings that didn't go as well as I hoped, things that got canceled or changed at the last minute. It allows you to say, God, but I rest in you and trust you with the outcomes of those things that went like I expected as well as the ones that didn't go like I expected. So just look through that list, pray through them, and then I'd encourage you to end that time, again, whether you do that in the morning or the evening, with this prayer, and hopefully you are handed one of these cards on your way in. If not, there's, they're on the tables at the end of the rows. But this is just a, a little excerpt of a prayer from John Bailey, and in just a moment, we'll, I'll read this over us as we, as we close. But it's a beautiful prayer of surrender and just acknowledging how little we can control in our lives. So I encourage you to take that practice on. Let's do this together this week. Pray through our calendars, pray through our to-do lists, wrap up that time using Bailey's words. Well, I began the message this morning by mentioning William Ernest Henley and Judson Vandeventer. Again, they both lived during that time of second industrial revolution and they actually both penned poems. They both penned words that in that time of humans exercising great control over nature, over the world, had profoundly different responses to that. 
Two poets, two poems, two very different visions of life. Two sets of words also that have echoed throughout the English-speaking world even today. William Ernst Henley was an ardent atheist who pens the words of the poem Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, I get goosebumps just reading that. It's an incredibly powerful and beautiful poem that captures a posture of control that I think we all so desperately want. Judson Vandevener, on the other hand, wrote these words. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, make me Savior holy thine, let me feel thy Holy Spirit, truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender, Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power, and let thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Now, while from a literary standpoint I, th standpoint, I think Henley wrote the better poem, Van Devender captures a better truth, a better story, a better life. Friends, brothers and sisters, we can surrender all to Jesus because Jesus entrusted himself and surrendered all to the will of the Father, who in the garden, as he faced down death on the cross, said, not my will, but yours be done. And because Jesus surrendered himself to the good and pleasing and perfect will of the Father, we can entrust ourselves to him, knowing that not even death can separate us from his love. And that our future is as sure and secure as his reign and rule in heaven from right now, in which he has promised to return and make all things new. So now as we close, let me pray these words over us. I have little power to do or control anything. It is not by my will that I am here or will one day pass away. Of all that will come to me today, very little will have been what I have chosen for myself. It is you, O hidden one, who has given me my heritage and determined the place of my birth. It is you who have given me the power to do one kind of work and withheld the skill to do another. It is you who hold in your hand the threads of this day's life. And you alone who know what lies before me to do or to suffer. But, but because you are my father, I am not afraid. Because it is your spirit that stirs within my heart's most secret room, I know that all is well. Amen. Amen.